This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. And a question for you. Are you certain that what you believe to be true actually is? There are many kinds of certainty. Religious fundamentalism, perhaps the most notorious, but secular certainties also abound. Just look at Donald Trump. Some know in their bones that Trump is right. Others know just as surely he is wrong. The Jewish physicist Max Born escaped the Nazis and concluded that absolute certainty, the belief that you possess the single truth, is the root cause of all evil in the world. Yet, none of us are born religious fundamentalists or political ideologues. So what are the conditions that lead us towards unshakable belief? And once we become certain of our certainties... Well, is there any turning back? Certainly our panel has something to say on this, not just because of their extraordinary life stories. You see, Laura McConnell is a writer and an advocate for those who have left closed and controlling religious communities. Laura herself was raised inside a Christian sect in far western New South Wales known as The Truth Laura, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Look forward to hearing that story. But first, we'll introduce Brian McDowell with us also. He used to be a leader in a Christian megachurch, but not anymore. He's now ex-evangelical, which is former evangelical. And he co-hosts the podcast, I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Him, not me. Brian, welcome to you and to God Forbid. Thanks, James. And uh, thank you for having me here today. So you described yourself as a teenage fundamentalist. Did you know it at the time? No, no, not at all. Um, I knew it was different. So I, I came into the uh, the fundamentalist or Pentecostal church scene when I was 17. And it was through my brothers who were in there. I didn't grow up in a religious family, but, you know, I saw something there that, that attracted me to it and I saw change in their lives that I thought maybe there's some good in this, but I wouldn't have seen it as fundamentalism. That's certainly something that came later on. How long were you with this group and what was it like? Um, I, I was with a Pentecostal fundamentalist group for about six or seven years and after that I started to question, I guess, which led me out of it. But while I was in there, look, if I'm honest, I mean, the sense of community acceptance, the love bombing by, you know, really roping you in through it, and whether it's done intentionally or unintentionally is up for debate. Love bombing. Mm. Love bombing, yeah. So certainly you come into these groups and you are surrounded by people, by love, by acceptance, by people wanting you to come into their community, be part of what they're experiencing what they are, um, I guess, everything that they're about. And, and it is something that, that really does draw a lot of people in and particularly for people who may sit on the outskirts of society that might be outcasts. I wasn't that, but I saw a lot of people who came in that were, and that acceptance is something that draws people in. You describe it as fundamentalist and then you go on to paint an attractive picture being love bombed. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely attractive at first and, and you do feel that acceptance. Well, what was the fundamentalism? Because loving someone and wanting them to have the happiness you have could be described as an innately beautiful human thing. And it is. However, it's very conditional. So oh, it's, Love isn't supposed to be conditional. That's its nature. Yeah, and there's, a, there's definitely a lot of um, rules, I guess, you've got to stick by in, in fundamentalism. So to be accepted into that group at first, it's come in, open arms, Jesus loves you, Jesus accepts you, here's grace for anything you might have done wrong, but it's time now to turn around and do no wrong any further. And should you do wrong? That's where I think there's a lot of pressure within those groups to act in a more acceptable way, a way which represents Jesus. And what might be a wrong that gets you into trouble? Oh, there's so many wrongs, James. <laughs> One of the biggest, I mean, purity culture is a, is a very, very big thing within these groups where any recognition of your own sexuality, of your, your feelings towards someone of the same sex, opposite sex, whatever, is definitely frowned upon unless you're married. Sex before marriage is absolutely unacceptable and, and in many groups it's something that can see you 
kicked out or excommunicated, as they say. Mm, Well, we must turn to Laura McConnell now. Uh, Laura, you grew up in a closed Christian sect and you left and you now support those who follow in your path by leaving. Tell me about your experience growing up in rural New South Wales. I'm nodding along here to lots of things Brian is saying because in some ways my experiences are very similar to Brian's. However, overlay that with five generations. Um, You know, I was born five generations deep into the group that I came from. Everybody I knew had pretty much been born into the group multiple generations in. The sect was created like a hundred years ago and your family was what sounds like it's been there from the beginning. Um, certainly from the early days in Australia. So the sect I came from came out of Ireland, um, but certainly my family had been involved from the very early days here in Australia in in the early 1900s. Um, So we were very deep. And it's called the church with no name. Yeah, well, they claim to have no name and no earthly buildings and no earthly leaders. All of that is a bit of a furphy because, of course, they do have a name, which is the name everybody calls them. Um, Often they're known as the truth or the two-by-twos. Often they were called the black stockings in Ireland because they have very strict roles for women and things that women could wear, including these black stockings. And how was discipline maintained? Uh, Our community is very um, tightly controlled, again, similar to Brian in terms of gender and sexuality roles. I think there's a very subtle control structure with certain people having more power than others, a very strict hierarchy of people we would call workers, but others may call priests or pastors, and then elders, which is a man in a family group or a community group who sort of maintains control and sort of says what people can wear or sort of tightly reins people in when they're getting a bit too you know, uh, naughty and, and wearing lipstick or daring to have their skirts a bit too short or wearing open-toed shoes, for instance. So it's a very subtle power structure, a very subtle control structure. And what were you once certain of growing up in this? What was the fundamental aspect, so to speak, of, of, of the world you lived in as a child? To be honest, I um, I think the reason I got out is that I never was a natural fit for fundamentalism. I, I was born into it. So Didn't you I, think I it was normal, know. though? Didn't you think the outsiders were the weird ones? I, I did, but very early on in my childhood, I felt uncomfortable with the fundamentalism, which is how I got out, really, is that I never felt comfortable with the, with the strict gender roles and the strict kind of view of outsiders with suspicion. I never felt comfortable fearing authority outside and fearing the world outside because essentially that's, our, you know, our communities are very closed. They tend not to encourage fraternising with outsiders, to encourage people to have friendships and relationships outside the group. And yet you're um, in the bush. Everyone knows everyone. Yeah, and, and I was related to most of the people I knew. You know, I grew up in a very large family community. Um, and in lots of ways, you know, I had a very idyllic childhood in that regard. I had, you know, loads of cousins and second cousins and third cousins. But I was always curious about the world outside. So what happened to you and your relationship with your family when you left? It was a very tumultuous time, and in lots of ways it still is. Um, I was one of the first in my close family to leave. I didn't really know anybody who had left, and it was a very difficult process. You know, I would have family members, extended family members, who would cross the street in the small community I came from rather than speak to me or acknowledge me. That hurt? It was horrible. You know, I would go to the post office to collect the mail in our tiny community, and they would walk straight past me and pretend they didn't know me past the PO box, you know, like this is a town of 250 people. You know, the shunning is another thing that, you know, that's fundamentalist, you know, that's sect, that's cult behaviour when you pretend that people you're meant to love and support no longer exist. Um, Yeah, and over the years we've come to a much more comfortable place and lots of other people in my family subsequently left, although it should be said that even when people leave it's very difficult. There's a lot of trauma that you need to unpack with people who have perhaps harmed others. So it's been a long journey. What are you thinking when you hear this, uh, Brian McDowell? I mean, what were you once certain of that you aren't anymore? Look, I I think the more time that's passed, I realise the less I'm certain of. And I think I was certain of everything. And And I think that's what these groups do. And certainly my experience was fundamentalism was a, a plug-and-play system. Like, you, you could jump into that solid framework of, and you would have plenty of commitments which would fill your week, and whether that be Bible studies, youth group, two services on a Sunday, and you were reinforced what that truth may be, and that is, you know, fundamental truth was that you were born sinful, you were born a bad person. But how are you not describing mainstream, or at least elements of mainstream Christianity? We're born in sin, there was a virgin birth, Jesus was resurrected. These are not, well, you can call them fundamentalist or non-fundamentalist views, but these are mainstream Christian views. I think where it differed was 
even though we weren't a, a closed sect like the truth, for example, you become a bubble. You become a system within a system. So because you are so um, busy with that church stuff, you have no no time for the outside world. And it becomes very much an us and them. Us who are saved and will end up in heaven, the rest will end up in hell. And you get to that where it's that certainty around everything you believe because everything is so carefully curated. All the the messaging that you get through all those different forms of communication, whether it be from the pulpit, whether it be from a Bible study, down to the books that you read, um, the music that you listen to, all of those things need to provide that certain reinforced message that you are the, the chosen ones, you are the ones that are going to help everyone else see the light in the world. And quite frankly, if they don't, that's okay, they just burn. So it clouds itself with a, a graceful outlook. But it's in the end, it's not very graceful because it's it's not this accepting place. As I said before, you, you have to live by the rules. You have to make sure that your behaviour won't tarnish the brand. It has to be something that, that very much reinforces that acceptable behaviour of, you know, make sure you're holy and pure and shining a light for Jesus is, I guess, the core of it. Do you consider yourself Christian today? Uh, I don't. Um, no, I'm, I definitely would say I'm agnostic. I've never swung to that atheist place just because I was always a spiritual person before Christianity landed on my doorstep. And so I remain a spiritual person, but I'm more than happy to say I don't know. I have no idea. I'm open to there being something else, but if there's not, then there's not, and I'm okay with that. And Laura? Yeah, very similar to Brian. I swing actually a lot between agnostic and atheist, and I married into an Italian Catholic family, and that's been a actually a lovely journey for me to see... Catholicism and Christianity from a different perspective and lots of the cultural elements of it. More into dinner than dogma. Correct, yeah. They're more into the, the people and the the processes about enriching their lives rather than their lives being dedicated to it. And, yeah, and so, again, like Brian, I think because I come from a spiritual tradition, I, I, I don't necessarily shun it or not want it. It just I haven't found a place that I feel like I can make a yes or no call. Well, on RN, it is, God forbid, up next, the lure of certainty and the nature of doubt. A generation ago, it was predicted religion and fundamentalism were on the way out, obsolete in the face of growing secular modernity, unstoppable. Well, it hasn't turned out that way. Fundamentalist thinking in religion and politics abounds. Why is the certainty of fundamentalism so seductive to some? Are we wired to seek certainty and avoid doubt? Well, Mark C. Taylor is a foundational thinker in the development of postmodern theology, and he sees a global drift towards absolutism, and he says it's potentially disastrous. Here's the problem. As the world becomes more complex, people want simplicity. Simplicity entails carving the world up into opposites. You know who the good guys are and the bad guys are. You know right and wrong, left and right. right? Um, everything is sort of set up in this kind of either-or way. In that world, right, anything that is not clear and precise is seen as fuzzy and muddle-headed. The problem today is not relativism, it's absolutism. The problem is not uncertainty, it's certainty. The ones that worry me are not the unbelievers, they're the true believers. That's Mark Taylor, Professor of Humanities at Williams College in Connecticut and one of the leading architects of English-speaking postmodern theology. Well, since the 1970s, the robust moral certainty of American evangelicalism has increasingly found expression in the political realm. And according to Mark Taylor, that's an increasingly dangerous trend. When you have a world in which there is a conflict between two sides, each of which is absolutely con is, is fully convinced of the absolute certainty of their position, you have disaster. I mean, that's the world we increasingly have now. In an absolutistic world, everything's black and white. It's either or. It is in George Bush's famous terms, you're either with us or against us. Now, that kind of moral certitude, whether it be on the side of a George Bush or whether it be on the side of Islamic fundamentalists, they're mirror images of each other, which are really finally indistinguishable. 
And that's Mark Z. Taylor, the religious and cultural critic, speaking with David Rutledge. Well, Laura, he seems to be saying fighting fundamentalism, say the war on terror, makes you a fundamentalist. Is that true, this you're with us or against us mentality? I think lots of things have binary thinking, you know. I don't think it's it's just politics or just religion. I think, you know, like race and sexuality and gender, this idea that there's just, you know, there's just one way, it's, it's either this way or that way is fundamentalist. I think it crosses lots of parts of people's lives. Um, and you can leave fundamentalist Christianity and take with you a whole lot of other fundamentalist beliefs about gender, about racism, about sexuality. So I think, you know, there's a real unpacking and a real, like, kind of breaking apart that needs to happen to break apart fundamentalism in all kinds of ways. We so often use and conflate and misunderstand these terms, fundamentalist, uh, evangelical, Pentecostal. They don't mean the same things, do they, Brian? No, no, they they certainly don't. And I think there's a spectrum. You've got uh, Pentecostalism is a movement, a relatively young movement of a hundred odd years, which had broke out of, of Christianity. And it was certainly something that we've seen take off through the evangelical church and it, it's launched from there. The evangelical movement, um, again, is a, another part of the spectrum. So, I don't necessarily think they mean the same thing and you don't have to be either of those to be a fundamentalist and you don't have to have a label to be a fundamentalist. But certainly you do see a high proportion of Pentecostals and evangelicals and and increasingly I think in the, the rise of Trump and the evangelical followers there, you've most certainly seen a rise in fundamentalism among those groups. I was just going to say, I think there's also a spectrum with fundamentalism. Not everybody is on the far right of fundamentalism. You know, it's not a it's not a you're in or you're out kind of fund- fundamentalism doesn't sit in one box. I think there's different spectrums within it. Um, what does far left fundamentalism look like now that the Cold War's over? Yeah, I don't actually know I know the answer to that. I've, I've pondered it. Like, what is it? I think um, it's more behaviours. I don't think it's a specific group that fits into the far left or the far right of it. I think it's like that absolute certainty, you know, like whether it's religion or whether it's um, politics. It's like that that absolute surety that you're right and that there's no scope for questioning. And then there's some that, you know, that do have some space. Um, and I think that's where that spectrum exists. What's the lure of that? People like being certain. People don't like being uncertain. Is that it? I think it brings security to a certain degree. I mean, particularly now we've got access to an incredible amount of information in this world. We live in a time of accessibility to many technologies, knowledge. We can study online. We can we can learn new things wherever we want. We can pick things up and we can have conversations with people. I think it, it can for some people become incredibly overwhelming. There's access to all this. What what do you do with it? Oh, my God. So for some people, I I do think it brings a security that you can go, okay, if I believe A, B and C and follow rules D, E and F, then that'll simplify my life and it'll also give me this plug-and-play community which I can be part of and I can be accepted, I can be loved and life might be a bit easier for me within that bubble. I think it's about social cohesion myself. Like I, I observe people who are s- sort of struggling with lack of cohesion, whether it's poverty, whether it's marginalisation, whether it's loss of community or grief from losing somebody or something. And it's um, it's attractive because people are not getting that in other communities and um, that, that certainty they get from fundamentalism is attractive when you're going through a lot of turmoil. But is it necessarily... Bad because again, what Brian was explaining didn't sound all that unattractive to someone who might be lost or marginalised or unloved. It often works while it works, and then when it doesn't work, it unravels. So it works while you follow a very, I mean, mine's obviously on the on a different spectrum to perhaps where Brian's experience is, but it works where you um, where you wear the right things and you say the right things and you don't push boundaries and you don't ask for your life to be any different to others around you. As soon as, you know, for instance, a lot of women that I've come into contact with have been through a health crisis and their hair has fallen out, for instance. And, you know, in, in the community I come from, your hair is your crowning glory. And um, and without your hair, what are you? And, you know, I think that that kind of thing just unravels, like you only belong as long as you can fit into that mould. And that's often not your fault if you can't fit that mould anymore, for instance, if your hair falls out. Yeah, I do think it it is quite exclusionary and that's the bit that's not attractive. And at first you you don't see that 
But once you're in that, I guess, in that system, um, you do realise that there's only a proportion of, a small proportion of people that can actually fit into that acceptable behaviour, that acceptable look. Um, if you walk into one of these Pentecostal churches, you won't see a great deal of diversity. On the contrary, Brian, the mega churches are uh, very ethnically diverse, aren't they? Yeah, maybe they're ethnically diverse, but certainly they're not culturally diverse. You have to adhere to that culture within a church and it is the culture is shaped by a particular uh, very conservative worldview and that is the worldview that shapes their God and then their God shapes them. So it, it is something I think that isn't isn't diverse. Like I think it can look like that on the outside. But once you're in there, I, I think there's a distinct lack of diversity, of opinion, of view, of acceptance. I would go as far as to say some of them are actually like melting pots of white supremacy. You know, like while there may be some diversity, it's very much like you were raised that race and you behave as if you're a white person, dressed like a white person, have the same opinions as the other white people around you. We are certainly in the group I came from. We are raised race altogether. It's like it did not exist. You're blind to colour, therefore you blind can't be racist. Blind to colour. It doesn't exist. We can't be racist. But, but that's what that's. This is distorted. But people say, why can't we be like Martin Luther King, who said we should be judged by the content of our character, not by the colour of our skin? Aren't you going against this dream? Or that they say that's that's they're reinforcing this by saying colour doesn't exist. I think we've got to give space to people's diverse opinions and people's, like, racial and cultural backgrounds. You cannot erase it and say, no, you, you belong so long as you put toe the line and you look like us and you speak like us and you behave like us. That's not diversity. Uh, yeah, look, I, I completely uh, agree, Laura. It's, it is that lack of diversity of opinion and view. And it's not even to the fact that there's that lack of what's accepted, but there's a, a lack of what you can even voice. So you become very, very quickly, your behaviour gets changed because you soon realise that if you want to remain accepted in that group that's provided you with safety, belonging, acceptance, that you have to continue to act that way. You have to continue to have a, a particular opinion on things and you have to be able to, to toe the line on many, many things. So you're not, you're not really getting a, a diversity of view or opinion and if people have that... It's certainly done in, in secrecy and you can't have that public opinion on those things. So, Laura, if you don't toe the line, if you don't comply and conform with what your religious community uh, instructs, how do you leave? Because it's not that simple if you're, as you've explained, in a, say, a country town of 200 with no police officer, say. Yeah, well, it's actually very difficult to leave and I, I think that's one of the most misunderstood kind of pieces of fundamentalism is this idea that you can just get up and leave if it's not working for you. And unfortunately, especially those of us who come from communities that are, are quite secular, uh, insular rather, we often don't know many people on the outside. We don't have contacts. Often, like the communities I came from, the families work together. Our family farms are all kind of entrenched in each other. Our family businesses employ each other. It's not easy to get up and walk out. And um, I was very, I was quite young when I left. I was 19. Um, I think the younger you are, perhaps the easier it is. But one would argue with the cost of living, it's also not quite as easy now, 20 years or so after I left, to actually just walk out. Um, yeah, and I, th I think it's about, um, I think having sort of a, a raising awareness for people to understand that when that people who want to leave fundamentalism need support, you know, social structures, things like housing, things like, Centrelink benefits are not easy to obtain. And um, I, I think that we need to probably, as a society, understand the impacts of fundamentalism and the difficulties in leaving. Mm, well, we'll have more of this on God Forbid Up Next. We're with Brian McDowell and Laura McConnell. I'm James Carlton. What are the conditions that allow change in a once fixed mind? What might prompt us to re-examine the stories and beliefs we're raised with? Well, Naa Makalan is a Jewish author and scholar, born and raised in Jerusalem, now living in Australia, is working as an academic. And she told God Forbid producer Sam Carmody, it was only after she moved from Israel to Australia that her perspective on Israel changed. I grew up in Jerusalem during the time of the first intifada, which left a great impression on me as a kid. I grew up in a home that was a traditional, I guess, went to a Jewish school, um, religious 
this goal. And I, I'm, I'm tripping over a bit on, on these terms because I think it's quite difficult to separate religion from anything else in Israel, mm. right? It's a, it's a country that states that it's a, a Jewish democracy. So as a child growing up, I remember the, the environment was quite normalized in the fear and loathing, I guess, of Palestinians. I was a Zionist, and that's not an extraordinary thing to have or be in Israel. I was very much proud of my nationalistic identity, and I think that this is something that the Israeli state does really well, but not just Israel, every other state, uh, relies on a sense of nationalism to create social cohesion. Uh, unfortunately, part of that sense of, of social cohesion, it hinges also on having a mutual enemy, that in the face of this enemy, we come together and we unite. There's something to be fearful of, and I guess that fear works towards developing a sense of uh, nationalistic pride and patriotism. And I think if you look at different countries all over the world, this shared enemy, you know, might change over time. You know, the Cold War in the U.S. and then moving on to different enemies around 9-11 and all that stuff. Mm. Um, but in Israel, the joint enemy has always been one, and that's been Palestinians. And that's something that you experience growing up. You sense uh, the, the Palestinian as the other, uh, almost lacking in humanity, uh, devoid of humanity. And I'm not to say that Palestinians are that, but that growing up in Israel with a deep sense of patriotism, where military service is compulsory, where you go to the military in order to protect the country, but you're protecting the country from a very specific enemy, and that is Palestinians. And I just want to say this isn't something that was instilled in me in my home or my parents did it. Not at all. Like, you know, my parents are tolerant, accepting, thoughtful, uh, left-leaning, I guess I would say in some cases. Mm. But it's sort of part of your schooling, other people, culture itself, the news, everything is saturated in. We have this enemy that we are fighting against. And even if this enemy lives, you know, across the road from you, down the road, in the next town, there's still a sense of this us and them everywhere. And this comes in through the language that we use, the way that we use to talk about Palestinians, you know, our conversations, our jokes, very derogatory. And it's horrific to me now to think about the things that, you know, I said and did, you know, 15, 20 years ago and where I am now. But I guess this is the reality of growing up in a place that normalizes this sort of language, that normalizes this enemy, that normalizes this dualism, this binary, where one struggles against the other and you must struggle Otherwise, you're not a patriot. Otherwise, there's something wrong with you. What was it? What were the circumstances that allowed you to examine that very fixed sense of the world that you'd grown up with? I guess what happened was that I came here to, to this colony, to this, I guess, another settler colonial place, which, again, back then I didn't have the language of settler colonialism or anything like this. One of the things that I first started recognizing was the uh, language and stereotypes that people use to talk about First Nations people, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders uh, here and the stigma uh, attached to First Nations people here, how they're being discussed in the news, represented in, in media, the jokes people make about them. And it, it kind of really resembled to me. I kind of saw similarities between uh, the conversations had here and what I was seeing about Palestinians. And because I didn't grow up here and I wasn't saturated in the racism that's that's here. I grew up with the racism against Palestinians, but I could see the racism here. And because I'm not from here, it, it seemed like, oh, something's amiss. I'm not seeing truth, well, alleged truth or alleged things represented in First Nations people that I'm meeting, that I'm seeing on the news that I'm reading. So I was able to critically assess what's happening here. Mm. And then suddenly looking back, I was able to draw these connections. It took me coming here and recognizing what uh, an invasion looks like here and what it meant to hide the history of invasion here, the truth of the invasion uh, here in Australia, to suddenly see, hang on, if people are lying about this stuff here, and I can see the lie here because I don't have this emotional connection to this place. I didn't grow up with a sense of Australian patriotism. I didn't go to schools here. So I could assess more critically mm. um, the, I guess, mythology of nationalism that I found and counted here and recognize, oh, actually, the truth is being uh, uh, hidden. The violence uh, was, was, being, was being hidden here. 
there to suddenly see, wait, hang on a second, uh, is the same thing happening back home? And another thing that happened when I was here was that I got to actually uh, speak with and meet Palestinians, something that really was not afforded to me uh, back home. As I said, there's a real sense of division. Here, I, for the first time, met Palestinians face-to-face. And, you know, there's this Levinasian concept of the face, right, where when we encounter other in their person, when you come face to face with someone, this brings to you this moral and ethical responsibility you have towards them, right? First and foremost, this ethical responsibility is to not kill them. It's to meet someone, everything that that entails. And that happened here. And I kind of want to say that's not really an extraordinary thing to happen. Like I didn't do anything extraordinary. I basically met people and I saw them as people. And I feel like embarrassed to say that growing up, I didn't do this. So I wasn't able to do this. It's not a virtue that uh, of seeing someone as a person. It's something that should be the basis of our humanity. But I think that when we think of fundamentalism, uh, I believe that nationalism is a form of fundamentalism, right? You need to create a strong sense of social hegemony and community spirit, and you do so by elevating a sense of nationalistic identity, of patriotism. And you have to tell a certain story, tell a narrative to create that sense of identity. And that narrative will ultimately be focused and centered around disempowering other people, uh, on reinforcing racial, uh, ethnic and other hierarchies in order to protect a certain status quo. And that's why it's hard to challenge these systems. And that's Naama Kalan, the author and scholar, speaking to, God forbid, producer Sam Carmody. So uh, nationalism can be tied up into the fundamentalism, says Naama. Brian McDowell, your perspective? Look, I, I think the us and them is uh, very much alive and well within Christian fundamentalism. And there's, much like Laura said, there's, there's a recognition of everything that's not us as evil. And quite often fundamentalist Christianity the devil is a real thing. The, the evil and devil is a real thing. And this, there's this sense of spiritual warfare where you have to pray against and, you know, pray and fast and do all these things to defeat the devil who is everywhere. And you've seen that in that Christian nationalism, I think, that's even... It, it's bled into Australia, but it's a lot more obvious in, in the US with QAnon. And you're seeing Q as this prophet who is ushering in the the new age and the the you know that almost end of the world Armageddon type thing where we're coming up against this evil that is out there, and you've got all these people who will take arms to protect essentially protect their nation, but a lot of it is protect their nation in the name of Jesus. And Laura McConnell, you've looked at QAnon, this uh, far-right political organisation which uh, espouses conspiracy theories in the United States. Yeah, I mean, for me, the interest came out of people reaching out to me saying, like, what do I do? You know, I've got I've got this friend or I've got this relative who's fallen into Sovsit or fallen into QAnon. And so, you know, for me, it's been about, like, how do people end up in this these places? What can you do to support people who who are in there? Do you do you maintain contact? Do you not maintain contact? It's a it's an interesting time um, post COVID. It's a, a point where there's been a lot of lack of kind of social cohesion and um, and that has pushed people into places like QAnon and Sovsit. Is it is it holding a political view but giving it a religious flavour? You know, and, and I used to think it was tied up with with religion, but actually, more and more, I think actually, there people who get tangled up in it are often not um, necessarily associated with it religiously. It's actually like more of a worldview. They're looking for certainty, you know, politically. They're looking for certainty with race relations. They're wanting they're wanting to reinforce their current worldview in things, often religion, but not only religion. Um, so I think it's certainty more generally that they're searching for when they end up in these rabbit holes. In a world of growing uncertainty and increasing difference. 
Yes, yeah. And I think um, it can be unsettling for people to have to sit with the idea about, you know, race and power relations, for instance, and gender and sexuality relations. It can be really, like, disconcerting for people to have to think, oh, am, am I in a position of privilege here? I don't feel comfortable being challenged about the fact that maybe I've got some privilege. And these places, like QAnon, can be places where they can retreat to and have their worldview reinforced for them. I mean, some of the stuff is just ludicrous, you know, like the lizard people stuff, for instance, is just ludicrous. But the things that people are willing to sort of of like bend themselves to believe in order to protect their own worldview is like astounding. But how is that different from religion? It's just if you have a ludicrous worldview surrounding politics, that's that, it's a that, that, point. That, <laughs> that, that comes with stigma. But when you, and I'm not mentioning any particular religion, but if you may no, have what's, what seems a ludicrous belief system yeah, through no. a religion, is it mm. any different? No, it's a fair point. It often isn't. But, you know, I think that, that it's just like amplified when you think about the concept of lizard people compared to some particular Bible stories, for instance. Mm. You know, it does highlight how much ridiculousness you are likely to believe if you're, if you're so feeling like you need certainty so much. There's just things you'll believe that are just don't make any sense. So the people who reach out to you for help, what do you do to replace that certainty? Yeah, often it's not it's not them. In fact, very rarely it's people in those groups reaching out. It's people who love them or people who, uh, who are friends with them, people who are family members who, who, who are saying, I've tried everything to explain to them this stuff is nonsense. What do I do? Do I withdraw completely? Do I stay close? What's your advice? Um, my advice is it's it's um, it depends on your capacity a lot of the time. Um, I think ultimately to shut somebody off and to shun them for these beliefs is not helpful in the long term because they will never have a support structure when they want to leave. However, you also have to protect yourself and also have to be careful not to enable their behaviours. So it's about, my advice is about um, staying as close as you can safely, being able to say openly, I don't agree with your beliefs, but I'm always here if you need help or I'm always here for you. Um, and maintaining some safe contact because you know, much like myself, if you want to leave, there does need to be people around you who will support you when you leave. Brian, what's your take on this? Yeah, look, I think you've always got to keep front and centre people's humanity. And with fundamentalism, what I'm always reminded of is I was them once. I believe the things that now I see is unbelievable. Um, I believed that Jesus died, rose from the dead, and as a result, I could just say, hey, Jesus, be my friend, and I would join him in heaven. But there's no evidence for that. There's no critical thinking that is behind that. But yet I still believed it because I wanted certainty. I wanted security. I wanted a place to belong. And ultimately for me, that was something that was that led to my unravelling once I employed some critical thinking. But I, I agree with Laura. I think you've you've got to be there. You, if you go in and you're critical and argumentative, you're not going to get anywhere. But offer them a reflective place. Encourage some critical thinking. Ask some of those questions about, hey, why do you believe what you believe? What is it? Because I know for me, when I was in Christian fundamentalism, I never really asked those questions and why I believed what I believed. I just believed it. And then I reinforced that belief by making sure I operated within a very safe bubble of that belief where people would reinforce it day in, day out. And that made me feel safe so that I pressed in even closer and closer to that world. And I, and I think that is very similar for fundamentalism in, in any sphere. Just in, encourage that critical thinking. And Laura McConnell, this is similar to what we heard Naama saying, which is that there can be more that unites insiders and outsiders, disbelievers and foreigners, than divides them. Yeah, and I think that's really key is to be able to show fundamentalists who are deep that, and, and people, you know, potentially in QAnon and Subset land as well, it's like that we have more in common than we have you know, differences and that we're, like, you, people are trustworthy, people are good people, and as Brian said, to, like, demonstrate humanity um, rather than to push away people who are different and people whose religious beliefs differ very, you know, differ wildly to your own. And But what about the assumption, what about the problem we have, though, that no fundamentalist thinks they're a fundamentalist? Yeah, it's a key problem, isn't it? Like, none of us think we're fundamentalists. I think that's where humanity comes in, right? It's like seeing people as people and, like, finding things in common with them. 
um, especially children. For, for me, I'm quite passionate about people understanding that fundamentalist children don't have a choice but to be fundamentalist children. And I think it's a good way to demonstrate that you can build connections with children, you can be gentle and kind with children in your schools, in your supermarkets, in your towns, even if their parents' beliefs vary, vary widely to yours because you're teaching the next generation how uh, that there's space in the world for them if potentially they want to leave fundamentalism. Well, more on finding the humanity in ourselves and in others up next. It's God Forbid. The Reverend Dr Gary Mason has been working in peace building around the world for decades. He's sat down with fundamentalists in Europe, uh, the Middle East, America, terrorists too, facilitating agreement where once there was only dispute. Gary Mason condemns all extremist violence, religious and political, but he says a curiosity is still required if we're to understand the forces that make people do such things. I spoke to Gary Mason earlier this year for God Forbid. Like any peacemaker, I condemn violence. I condemn terrorism. But the condemnation is not enough. Because I had to ask myself, I was never involved in political violence or terrorism, whatever phraseology folk want to use. But you knew a lot. In fact, you were a a confidant to uh, loyalist militias. Oh, yeah. And so you have to ask the question, what makes young people, and it is primarily let's be honest, primarily under 25s in Israel, Palestine, and my space and many other spaces as well, what makes them want to kill someone? What's the reason for that? And we had 30,000 prisoners went through our penal system during the conflict. So think of that, 30,000. They were all released or they served their time. Part of the Good Friday Agreement was the release of prisoners. All those 30,000 prisoners, since they have been released, 2% have reoffended. Now hear that statistic, 2%. Some of them I know haven't even got a car parking ticket since they were released from prison. So they weren't natural born killers or psychopaths. Now, there was a percentage in every population, be that Cambodia, Myanmar, Australia, Canada, the US, MySpace, who are natural born killers. So something made these young men and to a lesser degree, young women, take up violence. We have to ask, what were the reasons? I mean, the New York Times journalist Brett Stevens says, in order to disagree well, you need to understand well. So while I condemn political violence, the condemnation is not enough. I need to ask myself the question, what possessed a generation to move towards violence? Because those young men and women had been born in Melbourne, Vancouver, Rio de Janeiro. The vast majority of them never would have been in prison. But do not some conflicts reach a point where war is the least bad outcome, where some enemies are so fixed in their positions of evil they need to be destroyed? Most obviously, you know, Hitler in World War II. We think of the the Mexico drug wars. We think of Islamic State in Syria. I mean, how do you do a peace negotiation with the Mexican drug lord? And and it is is a valid point, but I would say... The people that are controlling that, the majority of people that are drug runners for Mexican cartels, you can be darn sure they're coming from impoverished neighbourhoods in Mexico, but they're being manipulated. I mean, one theologian writing on this recently said, the only just war of the 20th century was the Second World War. My people can argue and debate that, etc., etc., but you need to drill down to ask, why have these drug cartels in Mexico been so successful? And for many of them, they're preying on the poor. The vast majority of people that went to prison in my space were from working class impoverished neighbourhoods. On both sides? On both sides, yeah. And that's the Reverend Dr Gary Mason, the Methodist minister who played a key role in the Irish peace process. Laura McConnell, how do you respond to what you heard there about the social determinants of fundamentalism? Um, Gary was talking about poverty, isolation, humiliation. Yeah, for me, it's, it's a bit of a battle between like how much can you police fundamentalism versus let it be. And I, I think for me, I, I'm somebody who's a bit of an abolitionist because of my own kind of background. But I sort of tend to the tend to the like freedom of both religion and freedom of kind of political views. And I tend towards the seeing fundamentalism as a bit of a canary in the coal mine and a bit of a warning sign and saying, I don't think you can police it. And I don't think you can do things like what's happened in France with, you know, the hijab. I think it's about like, 
actually understanding that if people are being attracted to fundamentalism, there's something in your social cohesion and something in your poverty, in your in your social structures, which is not working. And you really need to spend your time and energy looking at that rather than trying to police it. I think for me, it's like, what is it telling you? That canary in the coal mine of people being attracted to fundamentalism, why? It's because of poverty, disenfranchisement, lack of social security structures. These people are looking for meaning and they're looking for for more as a result of something being wrong, not because they they need you to police them or they need you to tell them that they're wrong necessarily. I um, I, you know, I, I just have spent a lot of time un- trying to understand why my own family and so many generations of my family were attracted to this structure. And it is, it's about disadvantage, it's about loss, it's about grief and poverty. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not into the like the the policing things. I'm more into the understanding why and trying to do something about that. And just before we get to the quiz, which is full of uncertainty, tell me... <laughs> Terrifying. Uh, <laughs> tell me, Brian and, and Laura, uh, about your lives post the certainties of fundamentalism. Is there still space for certainty in your life? Do you still always welcome uncertainty because life is so inherently doubtful? I mean, where, where, where are you at? Oh, look, I, I embrace uncertainty a lot more than I ever did and I, I have a greater comfort with it. Uh, and, you know, there's still lots of certainties in my life and, um, you know, I love my family and I, I love my life and I, I think everything is is good. I, I feel good about life, but I don't know what's next. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen when I leave this world and I'm completely comfortable with that. And I, I think that's, you know, certainly the the podcast that Troy and I started is... We started to tell our stories about that as a as a post fundamentalist story, and there's so many people that have come to us through that. In going, I thought I was alone. Mm. I actually didn't know how to navigate this. I didn't know to work that, how to work this stuff out, and bringing together a community of people that are going, I'm not alone, and and I'm comfortable with the uncertainty of that. So I think for. For me, um, I'll continue to sit in that place and I'm not as worried about changing my view on something. In five years, I might have a different view on something that I have a view on now and I'm not going to get hung up whether that changes because as more information and different information becomes available, I'm comfortable to embrace that. That's the beauty of science as well. Truth is very much about the, the here and now until we know something new, new evidence emerges. And Laura McConnell? Yeah, very similar to Brian. I'm very comfortable with the chaos. And in fact, that's one thing I'd say about my life is there's very little certainty and a lot of chaos. And I I, I always feel very lucky that I have the personality type that I have. And I think that's why I was able to leave fundamentalism and build the life I was so successfully, is that I had a very creative, very curious personality. And I'm very proud of that because it has enabled me to build something better. And to be happy with chaos and creativity is is a blessing. Um and I I work very hard now on community and on storytelling and on bringing together people for social change and for good and for driving kindness. And um, and with my husband, we own a, a betting brand called Go Kindly that is about, you know, creating space for to have conversations for women who are experiencing housing stress and, and providing funding for that. And for me, that gives me great purpose and it helps me feel that I can direct a lot of the energies for the things that weren't so kind for me when I left fundamentalism. And that... Um, it sort of gives me hope for the future and helps me with community and with kind of feeling like what's happened to me is has a purpose. And Brian, your professional social work gives you meaning too? It does. I, I don't do direct client work these days, but just being involved in an organisation that I know is making change and it is tackling some of those wicked problems in society like family violence, mental health, um, social isolation, those things that we we tackle together as an organisation but also our broader community to try and make a difference. So I definitely, you know, I was on that path to wanting to become a minister 25 years ago, um, possibly a bit longer now, but I soon realised it wasn't that I wanted to go into the ministry. I, I wanted to help people. I wanted to make a change. I wanted to be part of the solution for community. Hence, I moved into social work. Well, we're moving into the God Forbid quiz. Now it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. Wits End. 
Uh, yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. Brian McDowell is a contestant. He was once an evangelical, uh, now an ex-evangelical, co-host of the podcast I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Test your buzzer. That's it, young man. No Bible stories for you tonight. <laughs> mm, it's punishment, cruel punishment. And Laura McConnell, you grew up in the Christian sect known as the truth. Now, it was male-dominated, so there was a lot of mansplaining in your youth. Here's an example. What's happening? It's the rapture, Shauna. The rapture. The rapture, Shauna. (laughs) Now, first question. In 1910, the Presbyterian Church in the United States defined the five fundamentals of Christianity. Name them. That's it, young man. No Bible stories for you tonight. Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, that's one. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, come on. You used to be a minister. Cast your mind back. Well, I don't think people understand fundamentalism is not about the Bible. We don't know anything about the Bible. We just know how to recite it. But you know enough about the Bible to know that it's uh, inerrant. I mean, the Bible, biblical inerrancy. There is no error in the Bible. This is one of the five fundamental beliefs, isn't it? Uh, it, it, it would be biblical inerrancy, um, Jesus rose from the dead. What else have we got? Missed virgin birth, the divine nature oh. of Jesus Christ and his future return. Oh, of course. And and I really should have known those things because they are definitely the tenets of fundamentalism. So I, I've obviously been out of it for too long. Yeah. Oh, well. Next question. Sun Myung Moon holds the Guinness Book of World Records record for marrying more than 6,500 people at a single wedding event. Well, that would have cost a fortune. What's the name of Sun Myung Moon's Korean-based religious sect? That's it, young man. No Bible stories for you tonight. The Moonies. The Moonies is kind of a nickname. The full name is the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, or simply the Unification Church. Three million members uh, around the world, um, approximately. And the founder, Sun Myung Moon, believed he was the second incarnation of Christ. Uh, During World War II, the Japanese Emperor Hirohito was worshipped as a manifestation of the divine. This led his followers to engage in an act known as divine wind. What is that? That's it, young man. No Bible stories for you tonight. Oh, is that uh, kamikazes? Yes, that's uh, divine wind translates as kamikaze in Japanese. It describes, of course, the Japanese pilots who flew suicide missions by crashing their planes into American warships. Uh, Next question. Actor celebrities Joaquin Phoenix and Rose McGowan grew up in which Christian sect? It's the rapture, Shauna. The rapture. Is it Jehovah's Witnesses? No, the children of God, which extolled the virtues of free love and uh, prepared for the second coming of Jesus. They didn't really mix with the outside world, or those who did were shunned as systemites, you know, people who go with the system. Next question. In which branch of major world religion do some male believers whip and cut themselves with swords as an act of mourning and ritual bloodletting? A branch of Islam. That's it, young man. No Bible stories for you tonight. Shiites? Exactly. Mourning the death of the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, Imam Hussein, killed at the Battle of Karbala. And if you watch the Ashura Festival annually, the imagery is unforgettable. Hundreds of men uh, crying inconsolably with grief, even though the the battle and the beheading of Imam Hussein was 1,300 years ago. Uh, Well, with that... I can tell you, no winner in the quiz. We didn't deserve it, it's let's a, be honest. No, no, you, you drew. Equal it's, last. <laughs> e- equal first, Laura. Uh, but my God, I've enjoyed Laura and Brian's company today. Thank you both for being on God Forbid, Laura. And you too. Laura has an outstanding blog where you can find much more of her work. That's lauramcconnell.com.au. And Brian, thanks to you. Thanks, James. Brian McDowell, a former evangelical, ex-evangelical, do check out his podcast. I was a teenage fundamentalist. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Remember to be good. This has been God Forbid.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.